listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Well, no, it's actually quite green outside. And speaking of green, hey, potheads, here's Doug Ford with some wishes. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Oh, Happy Holidays, potheads, because the province has made big moves when it comes to the sale of legal cannabis. The Ontario government announcing it is going to do away with this ludicrous lottery system that has been using it to award cannabis store licenses, and that is gone as of next month. The thing has just been absolutely broken from the get-go. Now, you may recall that the PCs initially said they were going to open up the market, there was no cap on stores, and all of this sort of stuff, but then, well, wait a minute, we don't have enough weed. There's just Apparently, it doesn't grow like a weed, we don't have enough of it. So then the government brought in this lottery system, and then they said, well, we're gonna just going to give out a couple of licenses at a time. And th- the reason this is a huge problem for cannabis companies, for the attempt to break down or crack down on the illicit market, is that, surprise, surprise, this is where the people live. People live in southern Ontario. The vast majority of the population of this country happens to be in our neck of the woods. And so if these people cannot buy legal weed, and what do we got? Five stores? What do we, what, how, six? What, you going to drive across town? Get a gram of weed? You're not doing that? So it's become a huge issue. Now, the government has now said that beginning in April, at a rate of 20, 20 stores a month, that's how much they expect to open, 20 stores a month beginning next April, that's the same pace as Alberta. And by the end of 2020, there's expected to be 250 legal cannabis outlets in this province. Now, the new rules will limit retail operators to own a maximum of 10 stores. That's that current cap. But then it goes up to 30 by September of next year. Then 75 the following year. And why is that important is because what we're going to see in the short term, as they begin to open the floodgates, finally, is you're going to see every brand of store hither and thither and yon. Every store will be different, something that you've never seen before, and then the consolidation will begin, because the big players are coming. So there'll be... 20 stores, that'll be a particular brand. And then there'll be 50 stores are that brand, and so on and so on, until the marketplace is going to shrink down to just a couple of main players. That's the way it'll happen. Now, who will be among the main players? Well, there are some pretty big num- you know, players out there, but one of them is Alifa. And it raises some eyebrows because of who is in charge there. And to talk more about that, who's in charge and why that's raising questions, I'm happy to welcome back to the program Karima Assad, who's a lawyer specializing in cannabis issues. Welcome back. Hi, Karima. Hello. Thank you for having me again. So let's talk about what's going to potentially happen in Kensington Market, which you know has been kind of ground zero in Toronto for the push for legalization for cannabis. Sounds like we're going to get a big store from a big player going in there. What's 
Who is the name attached to that that you think there are concerns about? So, um, the official sign outside, and if you look on the AGCO website, um, we're looking at one plant, and that's the name of the company, which is uh, a joint venture between uh, Alicia and uh, the family that operates the Yogan Fruits and Second Cup franchises, right? So lots of money, big players, and they're setting up uh, in the heart of Kensington Market, pretty much just across the street from the Hotbox Cafe, which has been operating in the industry, not as a dispensary, but uh, in the cannabis industry, involved in activism for decades, and they have not been able to open up. Uh, So, I I mean, when you consider sort of Mr. Fantino, he's uh, the head of Alicia and his past as a police officer, police chief, politician, always staunchly anti-weed, that's what is raising the eyebrows. So the fact is that it's Julian Fantino who, as you... That's the problem, yep. And and why is that a problem? You allude to a couple of the points, but maybe expand on that for me. Sure. Uh, So let's think about Mr. Fantino's history. Um, So he's been a police officer since 1969 uh, and rose to the top. Um, He was the police chief for London, York Region, Toronto, uh, and all the while... Uh, his his record is is checkered at best, uh, and consistently he's been very anti-cannabis. Um, there was, I guess, a a brief bright spot in 2003 where he instructed officers to uh, stop arresting for simple possession. Um, but aside from that, um, he he's been opposed, and under his watch, um, thousands of people have been jailed and arrested and convicted for nonviolent cannabis offenses, uh, disproportionately black and indigenous people. And those subsets, uh, there's data showing that they were treated in much harsher ways than their white counterparts. So all of this, right, when we, we think about, you know, who is profiting from legal weed uh, and who has been left behind, uh, the hypocrisy here very troubling. Fantino told the Toronto Sun in 2004, quote, I guess we can legalize murder too, and then we won't have a murder case. We can't go that way. That was his response when asked about uh, legislation that would legalize marijuana. He was strongly opposed to it then. Could you not make the case, though, Karima, that Mr. Fantino was simply upholding the law at the time, and that he is free now to pursue profits under a new law. You know, that, that's an interesting question, right? And, and there's what's legal, what's moral, what's right, what's wrong. Um, legally speaking, sure, uh, there's nothing that prevents him from profiting um, at this juncture, and people's minds change. All right, we can accept that. But... Where I take issue is he was enforcing laws in a harsh way against primarily minorities in a way that stifled um, and, you know, tried to shut down this cannabis industry. For him to now be at the forefront of making profit through the recreational market, 
when there are still people who are either sitting in jail or dealing with the fallout, uh, the consequences of having a criminal record, these same people who cannot get into the industry, uh, I don't think he's done enough to atone for the harm that he caused, right? There, there's been no calls for cannabis amnesty from Fantino. There have been no calls for a fair and free market. Um, so he, on the one hand, was profiting from prohibition. He made his career off of this and now is profiting from legalization. Where is the equity? Would some kind of atonement go some distance to, I mean, you you talk about, you know, having records expunged. There has been some evidence that people of color are having much more difficulty actually getting through that process, which has not been particularly easy for anybody, it seems. Yeah, the the regime that was set up, and and to be fair, um, this was a liberal initiative, and Mr. Fantino was not in uh, power in Parliament at this time, right? So I'm I'm not laying... uh, the whole dilemma at his feet. Um, but I think atonement is the very least he could do um, starting off. And, and, you know, if I was in charge of the rules, uh, I would say that former politicians, prosecutors, police officers who made their living on enforcing the war on drugs, uh, really they should be at the back of the line and, and we should have a licensing system that provides meaningful reparations, right? Because words are cheap. It's not hard to say sorry, although I'm still not holding my breath on that. Uh, But for those who who suffered real-life consequences for nonviolent offenses that really paved the way for legalization, uh, those are the people who need to be profiting. Karim Al-Saud is a lawyer specializing in cannabis-related issues. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Take care. We did reach out to Julian Fantino to see if he would respond. He has not gotten back to us as we go to air. Welcome back to the program. This week at Queen's Park, a special unveiling. The portrait of Kathleen Wynne was unveiled. It will hang on the second floor outside the Premier's office with the other previous premiers of this province. This is a traditional thing that happens after a premier serves their time. There is usually a a delay of a couple of years. But in this particular case, Kathleen Wynne had a very specific reason for wanting to have this portrait put back up, or rather put on the wall, and quickly. I'm going to play an interesting interview for you for Focus Ontario that I did just recently with Kathleen Wynne. And then out of that, I want to have a conversation with you about the legacy of Kathleen Wynne. Because when Ms. Wynne came into the studio for this interview, she was asked by one of my colleagues as she came in, she, he, he said to her, do you ever feel like just shouting out, hey, you, you miss me yet? And without missing a beat, she looked directly at him and said, I don't have to because people come and say it to me directly to my face that they miss me. So the question for you is, do you miss Kathleen Wynne? And I, I asked that question as we look back on the last 18 months in this province, the disruption, 
the difficulty that Premier Doug Ford has had, he would admit that his first year was rocky. Things perhaps have changed in the last couple of months, but here we are in a situation with education in tatters, labor front, looks like it's just going to get worse before it gets better. Your calls coming up on whether or not you think, did this province treat Kathleen Wynne unfairly? I want to hear what you have to say after this conversation with Kathleen Wynne for Focus Ontario. Kathleen Wynne, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. Nice to be here. I'm wondering when you first saw your portrait, was there a surprise? Was there something that jumped out at you? You thought, well, I didn't expect that. So I had seen it before the unveiling. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it was an emotional reaction. I really loved it. I loved all of the the color and the warmth in it, and uh, I thought that I thought that Linda had done a, a very good job. I then worried, you know, what will other people think? It's a weird experience seeing yourself in that size, and um, but it was it was uh, I was happy with it. And as we take a look at it, the the artist in question uh, also painted David Peterson's portrait. What was it about that portrait that? chose you, drove you to that artist again. Well, yeah, I, I started with that. I started with really loving David's portrait because I, I liked the warmth in it. I liked the expression on his face. I know David pretty well, so I thought that she really captured him. Uh, she also painted a very close friend of mine, a guy named Stephen Coxford, who was at Western University, and um, I thought that she captured his essence, and I've known him since I was two years old. So, so I liked that she seemed to get into the person's head a bit and she and I spent, Linda and I spent quite a lot of time together and we talked about what else would be in the picture, how I would tell my story and it was a good process. These things can take a lot of years. I know, you know, other former premiers, their paintings don't go up till years later. This was quite quick. Why did you want it so quickly? Well, a couple of reasons, and I, I joked about this when it was unveiled. I said that there's time-lapse photography on wrinkles happening here, so I wanted, I wanted to get it up as soon as possible. But the real reason was that I see hundreds of young girls and their boy classmates go through Queen's Park every day, and I really wanted them to be able to see a woman in the role of premier. I wanted that wall to have a woman as well as all of the men that have been there and so I said I want to get it up within a year I'm a little beyond a year but not a whole lot you, you mentioned some of the things in the painting that point to your life family but you know important books I, I want to talk about what you're wearing and the reason I bring that up is because over your premiership there was a lot of talk about what you wore and things that perhaps we would not have commented on a male premier. I wonder how you took that and how you processed that and felt about it. Well I, I tried to talk a little bit about that in my remarks at the unveiling because um, the suit I'm wearing is the suit that I had worn uh, in the last debate in the 2018 election. Um, I wanted to wear a dress because I wanted it to be very clear that I was making a statement about yes this is di I'm different you know I'm different than the other people who have been premier but the scarf on the arm of the chair is kind of the symbol of those discussions that we had. Should she wear a scarf, color of hair, makeup, all of those things. Do the scarves make her look too fancy? Do they look too expensive? And I basically put the scarf there because I think we should, as women, as young girls, aspire to leadership 
wherever we are, whether we wear scarves or not, whether we wear suits or not, whatever, whoever we are, we should have the right to aspire to those leadership positions. And that's what, that's what the scarf on the arm of the chair is about. One of the unusual things about this particular ceremony is, is not often we see a former premier who's still a sitting MPP. And I wonder how you process that. You're still at Queen's Park. You still represent people in your riding. And yet there's your painting as with all the rest of the premiers. Yeah, and that is a bit, it's a bit um, uncomfortable in the sense that it hasn't happened before, and I, I understand that, but it's a function of me wanting to get the picture up. I made a commitment that I would be in the legislature, that I would serve the people of Don Valley West, and I'm doing that. But at the same time, I wanted to get the portrait done for all those reasons that I, uh, that I said. So, um, you know, it's just, it's just a different way of doing it, but I feel strongly that having the portrait up will be a, sig a signal to girls and to the LGBTQ community. You know, there's, there's never been an openly gay leader in this country before, and, or th there hadn't been before I uh, became the Premier, but, but I think it's important that uh, people see themselves reflected. There are six people in the running to replace you as leader of the Liberal Party. Three of them are women. I'm wondering what advice you would have to those women and other women that aspire to a high political office. What I have started to say to young women and to women who are running for office is that um, we're not as a society going to move fast enough for all the barriers to be removed for you. You know, social media is going to continue to be vile. Um, there are still going to be discussions about what you're wearing, how you look. You know, that, that's, that's a reality. It's a reality for men to a certain extent too, but it's heightened for women. So what I'm saying to young women is in spite of all of that, understand it, use it, be yourself, listen to the advice, but at the end of the day, do what you believe to be right, and in spite of that, it is worth doing. You know, you can make a difference in people's lives, and we need you, we need your voices, we need you at the table. Kathleen, congratulations on your portrait being Thank you. at Queen's Park. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Alan. That is former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, current Ontario MPP, in a discussion with me that you can see on Focus Ontario this weekend on Global News. You may ask, well, how, where were the questions about, you know, financial mismanagement and spending and hydro prices and all the rest of that? Keep in mind that conversation was about what happened at Queen's Park this week, which was the portrait. But it does raise some questions, I think, for you about whether or not this province treated Kathleen Wynne too harshly. Obviously, that, that government was deeply, deeply unpopular after 15 years in power. But it, it seemed so much of the animosity was directed directly towards Kathleen Wynne. Has that changed? Has that changed for you? Let's go to John, who is calling from North York. John, do you think she was treated too harshly by this province? the worst premier this province has ever had. Why would you say that? The, because I'm going to be paying the debt she caused well into my 80s. But that is not actually true. Um, if you look at the spending, I think you would, if you want to blame somebody, I think you want to blame Dalton McGuinty for that, because the expansion of spending over McGuinty is much more significant because he's in power for much uh, a longer period. I, I agree he was in power for a longer period, but she... If she had the the knowledge and the experience of his mistakes, she should have learned from them. But instead, she just made it worse. 
and uh, and and Doug Ford got elected to balance the books. And and, and yet he is not doing that. If you look at the numbers, the spending is actually up. John, it is not going down. I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I want to get to a, a bunch of calls if I can. Fausto is calling from Toronto. Are you here, sir? Go ahead. It looks like the government is our enemy, um, and democracy is hypocrisy because nothing's been changed, eh? I guess it's the system. As for Kathleen Wynne, um, I used to call her Kathleen Lose, and she did put our province in debt. Um, she was good at wasting. I don't know how she's in a position to be advising women or anyone to join her team to start from where she left off simply because they're a female. I prefer to have someone that's where they at because they're good at what they do as opposed to because of LMNOP soup or you're a female or some sort of a political category. I, I, uh, I don't think that really applies, Professor. I appreciate your your, your perspective. I don't think that that applies here. I don't... I don't think we should be judging her or any politician uh, on gender. Uh, Jonathan is the core in the Kawarthas calling in. Do you think this province treated Kathleen Wynne unfairly? No. Uh, McGinty was already putting a bad taste in my mouth. Then you have her swoop in after, which isn't her fault necessarily, but it just didn't work out. Um, I think she focused too much on social issues. And then I'm not saying the government or politicians shouldn't focus on social issues, but it should be a balance. And I think her social issues were too intertwined with the financials. It just, I just didn't like it. And it actually segued in, because while I'm on hold, all I hear is five minutes of her talking about social stuff. And again, I don't mind it, but it feels like... You feel like you're her, being preached to, perhaps? Is that No, it's not preached to. It's instead of her judging the content of her character, it's here's my group identity. I wear red jackets. I have red hair, blue eyes. I'm part of this group, part of that group. I don't care about, I don't, it's not that I don't care about that. Just balance it out. And the funny part is, is you you need to get your photo in because no one would remember or know who you were. I forgot all about you and I was happy forgetting about her. Yeah, it's historic though. Keep in, I mean, let's, let's give credit where credit is due. First woman, first openly gay. I mean, I think those are, those are important things to, to mark and, and to say that, you know, here was the first. She wasn't even elected in, as far as I know. Like the, the first, you know, she won. You know, she won a full majority. She went to the polls. She wasn't elected by the party. That's how she became premier initially. But she I won an, a general election. Jonathan, I appreciate you that uh, call. Thank you so much. Welcome to the, back to the program. We have breaking news coming out of Hamilton where a first-degree murder charge laid against one of the two young males accused in the murder of 14-year-old Devin Selvey. One of the charges has been withdrawn. This happening in a courtroom in Hamilton just this afternoon. The young man, Devin Selvey, was outside of Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School in Hamilton on October 7th, waiting for his mom to pick him up when he was attacked by a number of other kids, one of whom was carrying a knife. A total of four teens were arrested, two were charged, an 18-year-old man and a 14-year-old boy were both charged with first-degree murder. I can report to you now that the charge against the 18-year-old man has been dropped. The 18-year-old man is no longer facing a charge. However, the 14-year-old remains charged in the death of Devin Selvey. It is breaking news coming out of Hamilton. We'll keep you updated as we get more information. Well, have a go, Bojo. Here's a celebratory speech. 
to the conservatives from the newly re-elected or newly elected. He was already prime minister, but now he's the prime minister with a big old majority. Here's Boris Johnson. I, of course, want to congratulate absolutely everybody involved in securing the biggest conservative majority since the 1980s. Which, which is literally, literally, as I look around, literally before many of you were born. Yes, I tell you, before you, haha! You are in short pants. Short pants, all of you. You know, he's not I, hes not exactly the new Churchill, right? This is not exactly we'll fight them on the beaches. But listen to this. I think this resonates still. Good morning, everybody, my friends. Well, we did it. We did it. We pulled it off, didn't we? We pulled it off. We, we broke the deadlock. We ended the gridlock. We smashed the roadblock. We All of the blocks we've smashed, we've done it. Yes. <laughs> you know, this victory makes Johnson the most electorally successful conservative leader since, survey says, Margaret Thatcher, another politician who was loved and loathed. I can tell you that Margaret Thatcher is probably responsible for some of the greatest music of my adolescence. And you say, what do you mean? Well, because so many of the bands that I loved when I was growing up were all making music in opposition to Margaret Thatcher. But back to the current situation and Boris Johnson. What does it all mean? Well, one thing is for certain. Right, Prime Minister? This election means that getting Brexit done is now the irrefutable, irresistible, unarguable decision of the British people. And with this election, I think we've put an end to all those miserable threats of a second referendum. No. Those miserable threats and roadblocks. How about Jeremy Corbyn? He was the Labour leader. He still is at this particular moment, but this was a disaster for Labour. Corbyn has already faced calls for his resignation, even before all of the votes were counted. He called the result, quote, very disappointing. Yeah, no kidding. And said he would not lead Labor into the next election, although he resisted calls to quit immediately. Keep in mind, this is the worst electoral resort result pardon me, for the Labor Party since the mid-1930s. So Mr. Corbyn is obviously gone. The question is, how quickly? I have a quick one more minute to talk to you about something that I think you may be concerned about, and that is a Christmas tree. Have you bought your Christmas tree yet? You may have been seeing all of these reports about a Christmas tree shortage. Well, that is overblown, folks. I can assure you this is as far from a joke as you can get. But it ain't funny. I'll tell you why it ain't funny, because you wheel up to the lot and the sticker shock on the trees this year is out of control. I dropped a hundred and thirty, a hundred and thirty dollars. And it's and I get it home and I think to myself, well all right, you know, but it's Christmas. Don't be such a scrooge. And you put the thing up and it's like a Pinteresty kind of a hipsty hipster thing. It's tiny in my house. Obviously I should have dropped two bills because that's what you're gonna have to pay if you want a big tree this year. Man, why is that? 
An oversupply of trees a decade ago and the Great Recession delivered a double blow. The Department of Agriculture says that led to a 3% drop in the number of Christmas tree farms around the country from 2012 to 2017. And the National Christmas Tree Association says the average cost of a real tree rose $3 last year to $78. But industry officials say not to worry. Everyone who wants a tree should be able to find one even at the last minute. It just might take a little more searching, especially if you want a specific type. I'm Ben Thomas. All right, Ben Thomas, that's an American report. So 78 bucks, you throw in the extra 25% on the, that's a Hunsky, but still, that is not, I mean, I don't know if that's a tiny tree in this town. Because in this town, you want a big tree, you're going to pay for it. Too bad you have such high ceilings in your house. If you had lower ceilings, your tree would look better. If I, if I lived only in the basement. Yep. Welcome back to the program, and welcome to my regular Friday guest, Laura Hensley with Global News Online, and Mira Estrada, who is host of Cultured, and getting her microphone in place. That was that was nice. Uh, thank you so much for uh, both being here today on this lovely Friday afternoon. Thanks for having us. Hello. All right, let's, let's begin with Peloton ad. If you don't know this already, this thing has just blown up. Peloton, you've probably seen the ads. It's a stationary bike. and it, it, Basically, they sell you a stationary bike, but what they're really trying to sell you is a subscription to an app, which uh, gives you sort of spinning classes, you know, 24 hours a day. I, Laura, tell me about the ad and what caused all the controversy. Well, the reason the ad was so controversial is because it shows a woman getting gifted this bike by her husband on Christmas. And both of them are arguably already thin, good looking, white. You can tell they're middle to upper class. Um, and then I think the sticking point that made a lot of people angry was that in the commercial, she films herself using the bike. So she's getting up at 6 a.m. and spinning. She's coming home after work, taking off her heels and spinning and then she gives her husband that video of her every day working out as a present so people argued that that's you know (laughs) very it's archaic your husband's encouraging you to exercise you're like thanking him for that there's a lot of controversy around that and meanwhile he's on the couch eating some doritos watching (laughs) football mira (laughs) were you offended by it this is a thing i actually wasn't i didn't think it was that bad it was funny like people are saying it was spousal abuse like I I just thought it wasn't the best ad, but I didn't I didn't think it was as bad. Like this actor said, like he thinks he's gonna have a hard time finding a job. People are hating on him personally as the he, husband. Yeah, he is now the face of patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> Spinning his way there. Oh my god! Meanwhile, for her, Monica Ruiz, she actually got another gig out of it. Uh, Ryan Reynolds picked up on it fast and used her puppy dog sort of face in his gin ad where she's uh where she said something like you know it's time for new beginnings and then he tweeted out saying bike not included oh my goodness <laughs> well it just continues to reverberate it's one of those stories that just doesn't hasn't really died down over the last couple of days let's move to time magazine Greta Thunberg named the 2019 person of the year yeah yeah that's right she's the 16 years old, she's the youngest person to be chosen by the magazine um, for this. And, of course, being at a UN Climate Change Summit in Madrid right before the announcement, she's urged world leaders stop using creative PR to avoid real action. Like, I mean, I she is so worthy of this. Um, 
We started the beginning no of the year uh, not knowing how to pronounce her name, and now she is quite literally a, a household, household name, name, Laura. Yeah, certainly. And I think what's so inspiring about her is that she's really got a whole group of young people mm-hmm. around the world. And I think, especially when you're talking about climate change, it's the youth that need to take action. And she's really inspired that. So I think her, choosing her as the person of the year was a really smart choice and a logical choice. There's, I don't can't think of another person right now that's more closely associated when you think of climate change strikes than Greta. Lizzo is Entertainer of the Year. Yes, and like that, I think, was a perfect choice. Um, Breakout year for her, obviously. Yes, and I don't know who does not watch Lizzo without feeling good. Like, she is just exudes positivity, and her songs are so catchy, and... She's really, this, yeah. This is Lizzo's year. I think she also comes across as super authentic. And people want to feel like the celebrities and the performers they admire are real people. And Lizzo just has this genuine um, nature about her. So you watch her perform, you watch her with her flute, you watch her dancing. And like everything about her is just so feel good. You can't help but like smile when you hear a Lizzo song. I stayed in my car an extra 30 seconds to hear the end of her song before I came here. <laughs> Ju- which one? Juice? Which? What, what are you? Good as hell. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, you can't say that on this much show. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Golden Globes. What is this about a a particular foreign film that is not considered a foreign film? Explain this. So, it is. So, according to the Golden Globes, if you have to be have over 50% English language to be considered a domestic film. So, The Farewell, which was. It has a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It is like one of the most well-received films of the year. It is in the foreign film category. The filmmaker is an American filmmaker. And so there's a lot of contention around this because people feel like it should be put in the best picture category, not in the foreign film category. What language is it majority of it in? In Mandarin, because the story follows an American girl who goes to China um, following her grandmother's terminal um, illness diagnosis and they stage a wedding there and so a lot of language is spoken in Mandarin but it is an American story made by an American filmmaker and so it really begs the question is what is considered foreign and I think it also begs the question of what it, does it mean to be an American you know mm-hmm. if you're an American filmmaker you're telling a story that's true to your life but your film is not seen as an American film you know that comes with who who is an American? What is an American identity? And I was just curious to know how, you know, many people in the States uh, speak Mandarin or Cantonese. And Chinese languages are the third most spoken in the U.S. And that includes Cantonese, Mandarin, and other varieties. So it's not like no one in the States is understanding or is speaking this, but she's definitely been excluded. And I think that that's hopefully opening up a larger conversation. I want to move to something that I read in The Atlantic this week that sparked a lot of conversation. It's being widely shared. It was written by Olga Kazan, and it goes like this. Is it okay for me or any woman to wear leggings to the office regularly? I mean, I don't mean leggings that are made to look like dress pants, because that's basically all women's dress pants these days. In an informal internet poll performed by the Society for Human Resource Management, 90% of 9,000 respondents said leggings violate their office dress code. 
And then Olga Kazan, writing in The Atlantic, sums up this way, women already have to deal with a persistent pay gap, gendered stereotypes about our personalities, expectations to apply an assortment of powders to our faces, at least give us stretchy pants to endure it all in. Let's go around, and Sheba is our producer, my producer, and joins us as well. Let's Actually, Sheba, let's start with you. How do you feel about leggings in the office? Okay, I think there's an art to wearing leggings in the office. There is still a way to look professional. First of all, leggings are not pants. So the key is... Don't you hate pants? <laughs> so the key is to make sure that everything that needs to be cover- covered should You're talking be about the butt here. Yes, You're cover talking- your butt. Well, not only the butt, but, you know... The but. front butt as well. <laughs> so. Just cover it up, and leggings are not pants. So there is a way to look professional as long as you wear them properly. Laura? I don't think you should wear leggings at work. Period. Uh. I'm anti-leggings. I think when you're at work, you should be dressing, you know, depending where you work, right? If you work at a gym, you need to wear leggings. But if you're in an office, I think you should be wearing pants because leggings, in my opinion, don't look as formal. They affect the way you're seen and you want to be taken seriously or professionally. You got to dress a certain way. I'm getting dirty looks. I have an unpopular opinion here. (laughs) I'm giving Laura the death stare. My leggings are so damn nice that I only reserve them for date night. Right, you have dress leggings. I have such nice leggings. <laughs> okay. And I don't even wear, I work from home a lot. Right. I don't even wear leggings at home. I wear sweats at home because leggings are not I don't want to get too detailed, but are, but are you going long sweater with the with the leggings or are you just, no, you just nice, out and proud? I'll wear, <laughs> I'll wear, <laughs> like like Sheba said, like we wear them respectably, but I don't have to always wear a long sweatshirt. Can you be authoritative? Can you, you be a blazer a, and leggings? Can you Hello? be a, a, a woman in power in the office, you know, with direct reports and wear leggings? Yes, I, I, you can. No. I, 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 I asked that question Not honestly. cotton leggings. Open. Would you take seriously a man wearing sweatpants? I don't think it's the same thing it's at all. It's not the same. <laughs> sweatpants are completely different from leggings. Why? And because it's a completely different look. I mean, there's two types of leggings. There's leggings that you work out in at the gym. Right. Exactly. And then there are the leggings that can look professional. Well, I'm not talking so about Alan, the jeggings. I mean, I, went, I buy denim these days. It's a basically blazer. a legging. So leggings, pumps, and a blazer. Uh, that's a good look. Exactly. Okay. But and I'm your boss. I think the article was specifically looking at the, like, stretchy leggings, you know? Like the H&M Joe Fresh type leggings that are just cotton. Like, those are casual leggings. If you're wearing leather leggings or expensive like high-waisted, these formal ones, that's different. But I think if we're talking about leggings in their truest sense, cotton stretch, no. Laura, I agree with you there. My my (laughs) wife actually asked me this, on in all honesty, does anybody in your office wear athletic work to wear? Because I'd love to, I can't, but I'd love to do that. And I think that's a question. Oh yeah, there's that athleisure. Yeah, I think athleisure is a little too casual. Is that too much? Too casual, yeah. I agree there. That was my argument. You know, like those types of leggings. I think if you're dressing, and again, it comes back to environment. So it's what is acceptable where you work. And if leggings fit in. But see, that's when you can't pick the leggings with a sweatshirt. Is is this a sexist thing because it's it's the guys that are looking down? Is is that it? Or is it just, it's just not appropriate, doesn't matter? I don't think it's a sexist thing. I Personally, speaking for myself, I just want to look a certain way at work. I want to look professional. I want people to take me seriously. And if I'm wearing skin-tight cotton leggings, if I saw a man, a woman, any person wearing that, I would consider that to be too informal, too casual. That's not something you wear in a professional setting. So it's not even about sexism, in my opinion. It's about being professional. 
But thank you guys. I appreciate that. Listen, I'm out of time. I gotta go. Thank you so much, Rhett. But this has been a fascinating discussion all about butts. 